are listening to 2XXFM, people-powered radio on 98.3 FM, and this is Sacred Cinema with Jimmy Bernasconi. This week's topic, Breaking Free. Sorry to say, we're not going to be talking about High School Musical this week. Uh, I didn't mean to get your hopes up at all, but we might do a back-to-back one, two, and three. Maybe next week might uh, take a look at High School Drama or Evangelic Singing from Mr. Troy Bolter. No, this week we're taking a look at films in which we have a protagonist or a set of characters who are somewhat imprisoned, maybe literally or metaphorically, and they're amidst a struggle to liberate themselves, to be able to do whatever they feel like, um, to, to liberate themselves, to um, experience freedom, I guess is the idea. Um, why are we talking about this? Well, I was, I was chit-chatting with the family on the weekend. We're talking about the old days when you used to go to the zoo. I know it's not a very popular thing to do anymore. I still stand by. It's a great activity, great family fun. Uh, I used to love the tigers. I still do love tigers. And we were chatting about how much I love, you know, going there and spotting them out through the trees and how they got the beautiful coat and they're just the most beautiful animals. And someone in the family, I can't remember who, was saying, you know, it's kind of sad that they're not out in the wild. You know, they're stuck by, you know, in between all those big concrete walls. And I was like, you know what? They get fed every day big chunks of steak. They get a boyfriend or a girlfriend just without applying themselves at all in the dating realm. Basically, basically get whatever they want. There's no fear of being hurt by other tigers or going after something and hunting it and, and getting an infected toenail or something like that and dying of gangrene. They've really got it made, right? But I do get the, the point, you know, they're not in their natural habitat. They're not roaming around freely, but they've got these other forms of freedom. We've talked about freedom being something that's somewhat relative in the past. We had a look at a relationships and, and, and that relationship with freedom and, and redefining freedom depending on who you're with, who you have promised yourself to. So I thought we take a look at that struggle. What are we actually fighting for? What are we struggling for? What is that value or what's the ideal that we're pursuing when we're seeking freedom? Now, every week we usually unpack the topic and uh, in a way at the beginning where we uh, look at its depiction throughout art and history and culture um, in, in centuries past. Well, if we're talking about the idea of liberating oneself or that struggle to do so, uh, I kind of feel like we could really talk about anything that's ever been made ever. All right? we can, you can really read that theme into any uh, piece of art or any religious teaching. So I think we should just jump straight into the films this week. Uh, and what are they, you ask? Well... Oh, we've got some retreats for you this week. The first one is going to be The Rock, directed by Michael Bay from 1996. We're then going to change it up, uh, get a new speed going um, with the Robert Bresson uh, 1959 film Pickpocket. And then we're going to finish it off with an absolute classic Ace in the Hole from 1951, directed by Billy Wilder. But let's get started with the first film, The Rock. Now, you might be thinking, Jimmy... Come on, this is a highbrow uh, cinema show. We don't want to talk about Hollywood blockbusters. Well, I want to talk about this one in the context of why should we care about freedom? Is freedom important? Is it something that society cares about? Is it an ideal that is deep within the human spirit? Well, I think you've got to turn to Hollywood and the Hollywood blockbuster in order to answer that question. Because when it comes to blockbusters, they've got to win back all that money that they've invested in all those explosions, especially a Michael Bay film. 
This is his second feature after Bad Boys and doing all those music videos and things like that. So when producers are making a Hollywood blockbuster, they've got to think, how do we make a movie that raises enough stakes or raises the stakes high enough that the, 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 the maximum amount of people American cinema goers or, or, or cinema goers worldwide will pay tickets to see it. We've got to make sure that the premise or the complication is something that everyone can buy into, something that gets to a fundamental point, somewhere deep within the Western psyche or the global psyche, the human spirit, the human condition. Well, the premise of this film is that Ed Harris is the leader of this mercenary group. And he goes to Alcatraz, um, which you're not aware Alcatraz is this notorious prison in the San Francisco Bay. I've actually been there. Um, it's got really big seagulls. And I actually saw a seal as well on the way on the ferry. Um, and then um, he takes all of these tourists, like what I would have been when I was there. And there's this demonstration where they say, you know, folks, the tour guide says, you know, folks, um, you know, this is what it feels like to be in the prisons. And they shut the gates and then Ed Harris and his boys take over and they hold these innocent people, these innocent American civilians hostage. And they basically tell the US government, they say, look, I've been in this game way too long and I've seen so many of my brothers fall and, 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 and blood gush from their veins. Uh, in, in, in illegal warfare and they've received their families have received no compensation you have betrayed these American freedom fighters we'll get into the details of that a little bit more in, in just a second but that's the basic premise we have this group of innocent civilians locked in Alcatraz All otherwise in, in, in a more uh, general sense we have a group of innocent people in the most or sorry in the least free place in the world. So that's our premise. That's how you get the bums on seats for the Hollywood blockbuster. So obviously, freedom is this is something that is at the core of the Western psyche, or at least you know the, the human spirit, right? And, and, and the inverse of that is that what we hate the most is the absence of freedom. Something that, that is a deep anxiety of ours is to be imprisoned, is to be inhibited from doing what we want to do. That's how you capture people's attention. You turn their mind to the fact that, that someone somewhere is unable to do what they are rightfully able to do. It is at the very core of the human condition. Now, I should also mention that this film came out in 1996. Um, so it's a really good, I think I think it's really good to look at films from that era because it's, it's sort of the heyday of the Hollywood blockbuster and movies in general, right? It's before DVDs and piracy on the internet and everything like that. So people have gone to the movies a lot. You know, Spielberg has figured out CGI and special effects and everything like that. We've got Jurassic Park coming around coming out around this time. So I think this, talking about films of this era is actually a really good way of understanding, you know, what's at the core? What's, what's a really pure or, or almost a typical American uh, story, at least in the modern age? Um, but also in the post-Cold War age, right? So if we're talking about freedom, I think we do need to talk about these big ideologies of capital. And I will get back to The Rock in just a moment. I will get there. Um, but we need to talk about this whole capitalism versus communism debate, right? Because these are the two big superpower ideologies that both say, a lot of people think communism is about equality. It's not, right? If you read Marx, if you read all that stuff, not that I've read Marx front to back, but if you read, um, the, you know, the great liberal uh, scholars and the great Marxist scholars, they're all talking about the same thing. It's about liberation, but their concepts of it are different. And obviously their methods of reaching it are different. But in a general sense, what they both want, what Marxists and liberals are like, one, I mean liberals in the classical sense, is for the individual to be free, to be uninhibited, to be able to do whatever they choose. It's just that their concepts of that are different. 
So after the Cold War in 1996, capitalism wins, right? So you would think that we have found this situation, we found an ideology, a framework, uh, a, circ- a set of circumstances that does allow for individual freedom. But people obviously don't feel like that in 1996, right? Uh, a lot of anti-capitalists would, would say that's probably because capitalism doesn't allow for freedom, that sort of thing. I don't want to get too deep into that. But, but basically, what's going on in the American psyche at this time is have we actually... Does capitalism actually win it for us? I mean, if you look at all the films that come around this time, you've got things like American Psycho, Fight Club, American Beauty. Like These are mainstream American films that are really questioning whether capitalism is something that is truly liberating. And even though this is a Hollywood blockbuster film that is very mainstream, you know, it's very Michael Bay directed it, uh, (laughs) I I think this film actually does call into question... um, what actually is freedom and, and is really, um, I don't want to say exploiting, but is really playing off a lot of these anxieties we have about being subtly or covertly tricked into being imprisoned within this almost invisible hegemonic system. Like, there's a lot of films coming out at this time about prison breaks, right? You've got Shawshank Redemption. You've also got A Silence of the Lambs. It's almost like there's something going in the psyche at this time in this in this. Now, you know, the Cold War is, is, you know, the end of the Cold War is pretty fresh, right? Around this time, people are kind of still pretty anxious or almost anxious of a new kind of enemy, which is this false sense of freedom. And as, as I mentioned before, despite being such a mainstream film, this really this film really does have a very sort of complex or, or depicts freedom in a very complex way. You would think that, um, you know, there's just a bunch of American flags and people running with guns and saying, you know, freedom is you know the death to terrorists and that sort of thing. But the terrorists in this film are Americans. They're actually American soldiers. They're people that fought for America's freedom. So there's this this real backflip thing going on, right? Where the system has actually betrayed itself, right? What Ed Harris is going after is the same people that employed him. And we have this great speech at the end from the American president that talks about the fact that it's a tragedy that a guy like him, that is almost like the archetypal or the 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 the, the superior or the, or, or, or the the ideal American hero would turn on his country or would, would, would feel that he needs to turn on his country for the sake of justice. So it's almost like this, this freedom machine that was America throughout the Cold War has actually become this self-destructive system. So we know that freedom is valuable, right? From from looking at the rock, we know that something that the America, it's something that the, is very dear to the Western psyche, right? It's obviously something that we're very sensitive toward, and we want to achieve it, we want to pursue it. But what actually is it, right? The rock actually lay, ra- raises more questions than it answers. Sort of has us wondering: How do you actually um, obtain freedom? And I think there's a good film to go to now that that perhaps provides provides a refreshing insight into that question. Before we do, just a reminder, you are listening to Sacred Cinema with me, Jimmy Berners-Coney, on 2XX FM, people-powered radio, tuning to 98.3 for more uh, community radio action. So, moving on to our second film for today, we're moving on to the 1959 film directed by Robert Bresson, and that would be Pick Pocket. Now, if you don't know much about Bresson's work, he uh, was directing, I, I suppose, around the same time as Truffaut and those guys, he, but he's, he's sort of more considered a precursor to the French New Wave, uh, but guys like Truffaut did sort of consider him to be a bit of a trailblazer, didn't necessarily agree with some of his religious views and that sort of thing, but if you're someone that likes things like The 400 Blows or uh, Breathless or those kinds of films uh, around this sort of time, black and white, vignette uh, relatively short uh, character studies, this is definitely a film 
film for you. Uh, and it's essentially telling the story of a young man named Michel uh, who wanders around the streets of, I believe it is Paris, uh, pickpocketing people. And now, I think it's important to mention as well from the, from the get-go that early on in the film, he does actually get caught for pickpocketing and uh, the authorities bring him in, but they can't actually put him in jail because they don't have enough evidence and they let him back on the street. And then he continues to pickpocket throughout this film. And I watched this on the streaming service, uh, Mubi, and on their blurb, uh, they, they say that um, uh, Michel you know, returns to pickpocketing because it's the only way that he can express himself. That's an interesting way of putting it. Um, I, I think it's fairly accurate. Uh, and definitely in this film, pickpocketing is sort of depicted as quite an artistic practice. Um, there is, there's a great sequence in the film where um, Michel and all of his other pickpocketing buddies go around the streets, go around this train station stealing all these wallets, and it's actually uh, pretty cool to watch them do it. It's, 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 a, it's um, one of the more exciting scenes of the film. But before we get too deep into the sort of the, the themes of the film, I want to talk more about the idea of pickpocketing, uh, the artistry of it, and what it sort of lifts up. Um, so you've got to remember, this film comes out in 1959. So we were just talking about with The Rock, this post-Cold War period. We're sort of at the beginning of the Cold War period at this point. And people are sort of questioning, I mean, obviously postmodernism has really taken off around this time. People are sort of questioning norms and that sort of thing. So... Um, they're, they're, they're definitely question. One of the norms of questioning is is systems of power and, and the idea of control, and particularly um, subtle or covert means of control. And that's sort of what, uh, so not necessarily control, but uh, subtle means of power. Or, or subtle means of overpowering, or uh, perhaps obtaining something of individuals, something that individuals possess. And that's sort of what pickpocketing is, right? It is this subtle or covert means of, ob of obtaining other people's property, or at least trespassing, um, a, a, a way of... Um, in, uh, intercepting other people's daily lives, uh, changing the course of their own stories um, in a way that they don't notice. So it's an interesting metaphor in that way. And I suppose Michelle is both a victim of the system at large, um, but is also a perpetrator in a way. Uh, but moving, you know, so going back onto that question of, 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 of questioning norms and that sort of thing, obviously this film coming out in 1959, very postmodern in a lot of ways, and, and, and that's very much carried in a lot of the dialogue. Michel talks about the idea of you know being a thief, like being a criminal. He's very questioning of laws, and he gets into this interesting conversation with his friend Jacques, who's a real straight shooter. And for the most part of this film, Jacques has the girl, right? So the, the girl um, in this film is, uh, she's like a caretaker of Michel's mom or something like that, and they both have, uh, they're both pretty keen on her. And Jacques, the straight shooting, kind of nice, uh, he's got nice hair, he's sort of the one that's with her for the most part of this film. Um, and, and, and Michel is sort of saying to him throughout the, a lot of this film, it's like, don't you think there should be people that are allowed to break the law, right? Uh, and, and that sort of might seem a bit weird to you at first, but if you think about it, you know, the law is a funny thing. Right, if you believe that there is such a thing as good and evil, and, and that that's something that human beings have a natural uh, understanding of intuitively, right, that the human condition actually uh, gives us some guidance, uh, gives us an ability to know the difference between right and wrong. Why do we need the law, right? If or, or looking more broadly, the UN Charter of Human Rights, right? Why do we need to have a charter if they're innately human? If it's something that is instinctive to all humans, why doesn't it need to be written down in pen and paper? And that's sort of what Michelle's getting at. Saying, why can't I, well, he doesn't say this out loud because he doesn't want Jacques to get angry at anybody. He says, why can't I break a few laws here and there if it's a way that I can express my truest self? So in the context of today's conversation, when we're talking about breaking free, Michel feels imprisoned not by any physical 
uh, jurisdictional boundaries, but by the invisible hegemonic power of the law themselves. It's almost like individual provisions of law are like bars in a jail cell for him, that he's inhibited from doing what is instinctively something that he wants to do or something that he yearns to do uh, by by the law. So what's otherwise used uh, in a lot of other contexts uh, to be a means of liberation, right? The law is something that allows or is supposed to allow people um, to enjoy just outcomes and to enjoy a just life and, and enjoy a free life. Um, you know, a, a secular society uh, and, and one that um, was... Uh, one that is governed by de- democratic laws is something that is very fundamental to the French way of life, right? This is this is the country that had you know the very first um, uh, re- republic or the very first uh, system of governance that wasn't uh, dictated by some kind of monarch or something like that. So they're really flipping the board in this film and they say, well, why should I always have to abide by these laws if I have an innate sense of what is right and wrong? I don't want to be imprisoned this way. So as opposed to a film like The Rock where the characters are imprisoned by uh, physical um, imprisonment. Um, uh, Michelle is imprisoned by something that's a little bit more metaphorical, uh, something that's a little bit more... um Profound, or something that has a has a spirit, has a sense of a spiritual imprison- imprisonment, and I think that's best depicted in the final shot of this film. So eventually, Michelle does get caught. I don't mean to give that away or anything like that, um, but he doesn't really care that he has uh, that he's behind prison bars. And he actually outwardly says, like he says, these things don't really imprison me, uh, which which is an which is understandable given that you know his whole um, questioning and his whole cynicism towards uh, law and that sort of thing. But what he doesn't like is the fact that he got caught, that he got outsmarted by the law, uh, that that his sense of personhood uh, was was uh, outcompeted in a way. But ironically, it's at this point where um, Jacques' girlfriend—I uh, can't say it probably—it's it's it's Jean if I'm speaking in an Australian accent, but they say Jean uh, in the French accent. Uh, she comes and visits him and she's a little bit disenchanted with her life at this point and she finds that he is really the only means of salvage that she can find so in this ironic turn of events it's actually through being imprisoned and being uninhibited um sorry from being inhibited from going into the streets and pickpocketing that michelle finally gets the girl and he receives this new form of freedom in that he, he you know he's now found himself in love or in a loving relationship now there's a lot of metaphorical substance being thrown around at this point i suppose you could say that he's free from himself in a way so by being in prison being off the streets he can't really um self-destruct through his criminal activities and that's why she's starting to respect him i think another way of thinking about it is that maybe she sees that justice has been brought about i mean there is um uh, throughout this film there's a question as to whether she's the one that is telling the cops about him and that sort of thing so there's also a question here that, that, that there's almost this this almost tragic irony that that the girl that he loves is the one that imprisons him and it's only through being imprisoned by someone else's concept of justice not only the system or the state's concept of justice but her concept of justice that he feels that he can actually be liberated um, romantically speaking we talked about that a little bit a couple of months ago when we talked about freedom and relationships and the idea that freedom is enjoyed when you give it to someone else and they exercise it um, almost over you uh, so as to offer it to you uh, so as so that you can do much the, much the same uh, to them in a way that you can both explore your own unique identities at different times and that there's a sense of interchangeability about who has the power in a given situation but I suppose what I really want to get at 
with this final shot is that our concept of freedom is completely subverted at the end of this film. We see a man behind bars kissing the woman through those bars and we're made to feel that at, at finally at some point or in some way he's actually free in, in, in a sense, in one sense, but not absolutely. So I suppose at this point in the conversation, we've arrived, arrived at a point that we can feel instances of freedom in places that aren't typically or traditionally free, i.e. prisons. Uh, so we still don't really know what freedom is, right? So hopefully we can get some answers with our third and final film uh, for today. And that would be Billy Wilder's 1951 film, Ace in the Hole. Now, if you haven't seen this one, it stars Kirk Douglas as Chuck Tatum. And at the outset of this film, he is like this down-and-out journalist uh, that has been kicked out of every major newspaper in New York and Chicago and Boston and all these places uh, because he's a bit of a liar. He's a bit treacherous. He tries to get the big story by kind of taking a few shortcuts and that sort of thing. And I think his, um, his character... Uh, his, his true self is best depicted in the opening shot of the film after the opening credits uh, shown, of course. I, now, I have a real issue with when directors you know, introduce protagonists in an underwhelming way, when they don't use that first shot uh, in an effective or clever way uh, so as to let the audience know who we're dealing with. This film doesn't do that at all. Uh, we see um, Mr. Uh, Tatum lying lying back, his head in his hands uh, while his car is being towed. So we get this idea right from the outset that he's a guy that likes getting from A to B. Like, he likes going places, but he wants to do the least amount of... Uh, he wants to put in the least amount of effort as possible. In fact, he's actually inept, right? His car is broken down. He's not even the one doing the driving, but he's all too happy uh, to get to his de destination um, nevertheless. And basically, he convinces this guy, the editor of the newspaper, to put him uh, put him on, and he sends him out to this random town in New Mexico. Uh, I think he's meant to be writing a story about rattlesnakes or something like that. But he comes across this situation, right, where this guy is trapped in a cave. And he realizes that he could get a pretty good scoop out of this. Now, he goes down in the cave. He's the only one brave enough at this stage to do it. And he realizes the guy could probably be saved in a couple of days. But when he comes out, he says, you know, this is crazy, right? We're going to need to get the best engineers in the country here because he wants to milk it, right? He, he tells this whopper, this big lie, uh, that this guy is really trapped in there and that it's not safe for everybody so that he can write a couple of stories and become sort of the main uh, journalist of the day, the one that is the one breaking the story, the one that's in charge of this really, really big uh, newspaper story. Now, he's not the only one that benefits from this. He actually, he also ropes in the victim's wife. Her name is Lorraine. Uh, of course, she is played uh, by Jan Sterling. Now, she's one of these disenchanted housewives that's been uh, brought out to this random town in New Mexico. And she, you know, this is 1951, so this is post-World War II, you know, obviously it was a time in which, uh, you know, women were working a lot during the First World War when a lot of guys were off fighting and that sort of thing and now they come back and the, the men come back and the women sort of have nothing else to do anymore, this is but, but, but pre-women's lib, so she's, she's sort of that archetypal um, 1950s disenchanted housewife. And you also have the mayor of the town as well who's trying to uh, milk the story um, to act like this big saviour so he can win some um, election poisons the next time that comes around. So so we get this idea that one man's freedom a one person's freedom is another man's imprisonment, right? Through be through this guy being trapped, through this victim being imprisoned within this cave system, these other characters see uh, a gateway to their own liberation, right? It, there's this this sort of backwards and forwards seesaw effect here, where one person not being um, afforded freedom means that somebody else 
it's almost like Jenga blocks, right? Someone else, someone not getting afforded freedom means that somebody else can be afforded some other kind of reciprocal freedom. And we actually get a, a, a quote that depicts this quite well um, from Mr. Tatum. He says, um, when he's talking to, to, to the victim's wife, talking to Lorraine about why they should, you know, you know, um, engage in this plan, he says, look, there are three of us trapped down there, honey, right? This is a situation where um, we're all trapped right now. I'm trapped in my career. I have nowhere to go. I, I have big ambitions to be this world-class journalist. I'm not currently do that. You have ambitions to go off and, and live a life, uh, you know, a lavish and, and, and lovely lifestyle, but you don't have that here in this hot, stinking place. And this, the other guy's obviously trapped in the cave. So we get this idea that they're all trapped in there, but only, only two of them metaphorically. But what I think is really important to read into this is that Chuck has a misunderstanding of what freedom actually is, right? And I think the setting of the film is actually a really good symbol for his concept of freedom, or at least the struggle for freedom, or how to break free, right? The cave sits in this vast desert plain, right? There's this convoluted maze system. And then it comes out to this vast open plane and there's this big, broad horizon in front of that. And I think that's how a lot of us conceive of the struggle for freedom. That once we figure ourselves out of the cave, then we can break free. Like uh, like Joaquin Phoenix in The Master, when he goes across those salt flats, that we'll just gun it. We'll go for it. They we're finally out. We can finally go there. But but what we realize is that's not really the case at all. It's not, it, you know, Plato kind of talked about that with the cave, right? The idea that, you know, once you come out of the cave, we need to get people out of the cave. They're in the cave. They come out then they're free, or well, at least they're enlightened, or that sort of thing. I don't want to get too deep in the, that, that philosophy. But but this, this idea that there are places where we're imprisoned, and then there's places where we're open and absolutely free. But of course, that's not the case, right? The more that um, Kirk Douglas's character, the more that Chuck plays into this lie, the more he ga- engages in this downward spiral of lies, this, this series of lies. There's like this domino effect. And I don't want to give away the end of the film, but it ultimately leaves, leads to his ultimate demise. It's almost like a curse the way it's depicted. All right, I'll give it away. Basically, what happens is he's trying to shuffle around with Lorraine and she stabs him. And it's almost like this cut, this scar that for the, for the final act of this film drips his blood away and he becomes increasingly weakened and weakened. And he doesn't ever try and amend his wounds. He doesn't try and purify himself or make himself uh, a better person. He just keeps going along with this same game of trying to uh, continually be the best journalist possible, even to a point by by saying that he lied and that being the story, right? It just becomes so convoluted and ridiculous uh, that eventually, you know, with the famous last shot of this film where he, he falls to the ground um, and, and he's, he's, he's absolutely 100% finished, right? So, we sort of get this idea that we that we don't really, if we don't know what freedom is, right? If we don't have a concept of where we're going or what we're trying to break into, perhaps we need to figure that out first, right? Perhaps we need a concept of freedom before we try and seek it, right? If we don't do that, we're ultimately doomed and cursed um, by some kind of nihilistic will, right? There's no limit, uh, to our unbridled nihilism or our unbridled nihilistic desires if we don't have some kind of compass, some kind of framework that we can turn to. So I guess in one sense, a guy like Chuck Tatum is free because he doesn't, he's not hes not inhibited by morality or by, by right and wrong. He can sort of do and say whatever he likes. And that is sort of free in, freeing in one sense. But in another it eventually does lead to his demise. He doesn't have a structure and becomes self-destructive, just like the U.S. Army in the Rock, right? So, ultimately, we can't just 
we can't just chase something that is infinite, that is that doesn't have some kind of tangible quality. We need some kind of framework, something to turn to, uh, some means of knowing what freedom actually is, some criteria that we can turn to to define freedom, some means of truth. And then the truth may even set us free. So that's Sacred Cinema for this week. I've been your host, Jimmy Berners-Goni on 2XX FM, people-powered radio on 98.3 FM. Uh, if you didn't know, you can listen to the show or any of 2XX's shows on the 2XX website or on the un- on-demand platform. But thanks so much for tuning in today. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. If you can get in contact with us on the Facebook page, that's Sacred Cinema with Jimmy Berners-Goni. would be much appreciated. But until next time, see you again very soon. Thank you.